Hi everyone, uh, it's Joel and George here. We decided that the news today was big enough for a little bonus podcast because, yeah, it's been a, it's been a day in the football world. Um, just quickly, George, how are we doing? We'll have a quick, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling particularly frustrated. It's fantastic to have something other than my degree to take out my frustrations on. Mm-hmm. But I am, Absolutely. there's so many levels of anger that are existing towards this. It's not just the audacity of the proposal and what's going on. It's anger at people who see this as like the first step ever that football has taken to becoming commercialized. I think mostly also my frustration is people perhaps throwing their hype and standing behind, let's say, the wrong people. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this mischaracterization or miscategorization of people as the people we should be looking up to and the people that are going to help make a difference. People like Gary Neville, institutions like FIFA and UEFA, Mm. lots of people are looking to as if they're going to be the solution to all of our problems. And I think all of these things just point to the complexity of fuckitude that currently exists within football. And having just written one of my 5,000 word essays on structural violence and the way that sort of um, economic shock is used or like particular language is used to justify economic shock and to justify the essential systematic obliteration of the welfare of other people and, the, and like the welfare of working people. It just kind of points out that really football that used to be always in always initially crafted as like the escape of the working person from their day to day lives of having to live under a system which inherently exploits them where then you know, you know they're first um, they're forced to work under other people in order to make a living all of these kind of unliberating things that exist in day to day life football was the realm of escape for all of these things and i think this is just that final slap in the face that has at least pushed football twitter over the edge in exposing that football isn't your a political little friendly space you go when you want to escape from things maybe you watch premier league years when you want that to happen or maybe you watch mm-hmm. carl henry's 101 tackles dvd but you do not for the life of you turn to a professional elite football club to find some kind of solace and this really it, that's how, it really so that's how does tip it over the edge that's how george is feeling uh, that's how i'm feeling yeah, we haven't even explained like... what the and yes. and just before i know joel that you're also quite angry about this but we should start mm. just for those of us that might be listening who've been reading all of the angry stuff and people shouting yeah. about the european super league who don't actually quite know what it is it can, i think that's an important be, thing yeah. the anger is so intense it can be to the point that sure. what's actually going on has become overwhelming and obscured but i think that's in the interest of sort of like the big billionaires that are trying to push this we often find when sweeping changes are made to systems so if you think about like the sort of forced liberalization of like latin american countries during the 1970s and 80s and you look at like what happened with um, with austerity in the condemn coalition in britain at the start of the last decade all of these things were such sweeping such systematic attacked on the way that we see the world as working that it's not really comprehensible exactly what's going on and the, and no one has the time to read the intricate deep details and that means that people don't really know how to effectively resist and how to collectively respond to these issues but what is happening with the european super league which i think is particularly clever on the part of the billionaire is not actually telling us exactly how it's going to work and exactly what's going to happen because we're angry but we don't know in its entirety what we're angry at. 
we're angry at the principle, we're angry at the attitude, and we're angry at the system. But they can fall back on, well, you don't know how it's going to work yet. And they can wait but until, and they can wait until anger dies down to actually give specifics that will then inform when anger's when anger is given with information. That's where it can be kind of effective. They'll wait till the anger bubbles down, and then when some specifics precisely, come out, and it's too late for us um, to for the momentum to continue towards um, resistance. Let's quickly precisely. Get on. So before we start. Yeah. <laughs> structurally attacking every single element of this proposal and everything that it stands for. I think perhaps someone who's slightly less hot-headed, such as yourself, should explain what we know right now. Because all I know yeah. is that it means finishing in eighth place in the Championship, Cardiff are going to be automatically promoted to the Premier League. <laughs> Just to fill the spaces. Um, so, what we know. About uh, evening time yesterday, having with it having been rumoured all day that a, an announcement would come, this band of clubs made up of the big six in the Premier League Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham, laughably those last two, uh, AC Milan, Inter Milan, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid came together to form what they've called the Super League and announced, yeah, it'll be a competition run in midweek during the regular season starting in August. Um, so it's direct competition to the Champions League exists, um, as it exists at the moment. It's to Their plan is to play in this Super League alongside domestic leagues in Start off with two 10-team um, group stages and then a knockout format from there. So not all that dissimilar from the Champions League as it is at the moment. The big difference being these 15 founder clubs. Sorry, they're, they're, I've listed 12, but they envisage there being 15 founder clubs when they get some more to sign up. I think they envisage Always. Bayern, Dortmund envisage, and PSG. Yes, and at the moment all three of those clubs are resisting. But they're envisaging these 12 or 15 founding clubs having a guaranteed place in the competition and then five to eight clubs qualify every year to join in with the big boys it's yeah um so yeah that's the kind of format that we know of so far in terms of statements coming out every i think every club involved tweeted a basically copied and pasted statement onto their official websites i think except man united because they're cowards and um they've said the motivations behind it are to improve the quality of competition to improve the funding of football everywhere and the instability of the COVID pandemic. And yep. that they're the two main reasons. That it's shown that a strategic vision and sustainable commercial approach is required to enhance the value and support for, and I quote, the benefit of the entire European football pyramid. The thing about calling it a pyramid, though, is a pyramid in, <laughs> I mean, in the footballing sense of the word, means that you can climb it. But I don't think it counts as a pyramid if there is then an absence of space of about 50 meters that you have to somehow fly to reach the yeah, little yeah. cloud where the Super League takes place. It's... I think perhaps pyramid on a rainy day where there's no way of climbing up might be a slightly better metaphor for it, where you're making the sand wet and making the pyramid crumble into fucking dust. So might be a slightly envisaged... better way of phrasing it than football pyramid. But yeah. So it's and a there mostly are few... closed league is the main thing that I think is the biggest problem. A mostly closed yeah. league, which for now has some spaces for qualifying, but who knows what the next step, if this were to be enacted, would be. And also closed in the sense of it's impossible for the founding clubs to be relegated out of that league. But, mm. I, but it's important to sort of qualify that they don't see it as relegation because for them, it's something that happens separately from the Premier League, which they intend to still take part in. But FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League and all the major divisions, like um, the divisions mm -hmm. from which these clubs are coming, yeah. have said that their clubs won't be able to compete in that domestic competition. Yeah, and FIFA has said that statements. all players involved will be banned from international football. But so they don't see it as being promoted from the Premier League to the European Super League. They see it as 
a competition that you also take part in, which is going to improve the commercial sustainability and synergy of the sport. Synergy. And I think, we love synergy. I think there is, of course, football Twitter has gone absolutely mental about it, as has all of the sort of the footballing world. Out, and I, I like the way that the BBC Sport put it, where they put, what is the, um, the resistance to this? Essentially, everyone who is not involved is fuming, was what they said. <laughs> and I think there are a few arguments that are doing the rounds that I think are slightly weaker than others. So I think we yeah. should perhaps go through the obvious. We were um, deciding, we were deciding how technical to kind of structure. Arguments. We were deciding how best to structure something because we are both, we're both, we're both furious, but we need to decide how to actually talk about it in a way that's not completely uh, insane and impossible to actually listen to and follow. So yeah, so I think that's... the easy arguments that you go through is are, um, are so people saying, oh, oh, Arsenal are in it, but they can't even beat so-and-so because i think like you know for example arsenal drawing with fulham yesterday mm. oh arsenal are ninth they shouldn't be in it i think this is a very bad argument because what it implies is that if like, like that it should be the case that the top six teams are able to break away and form their league because that argument that's like oh but they're not even the best six teams kind of undermines and sort of highlights the stupidity of it but what it doesn't do is argue against the idea that there should exist a closed European competition. It's mm. just kind of saying, oh, well, they're not even the best. And it's useful for pointing out how absurd it is, but it's not useful for telling us why the idea itself is just inherently awful. And mm. I think the other bad argument that has come out is, oh, but they're going to be playing too many games. For example, Premier League clubs already moan constantly about mm. the fact that they've got to play 40 plus games a season. Imagine if you're, st and, and in this situation, they're sticking in. Okay, if you get to the final of the Champions League and you start in the group stage, you're adding 12 games onto your season. But in this, in the round robin, you're playing 18 games. And so people have been like, how does that fit into your anger at the amount of football you already have to play? I think this is a bad argument because that presupposes that we should let them stay in the Premier League, which mm. I think as we're going to go on to, we probably shouldn't. And so I think those are the two arguments that are doing the rounds on like a technical level. But as we've said, it's really hard to technically attack the plan because we could say, oh, but you're playing too many games. And they could just come back and say, well, we're going to space it in such a way that it wouldn't be a problem. Like the intentional obscuring of the detail prevents you mm. from providing a strong technical response. So I think the thing to do is just to attack like the essence of the idea and the kind of motivations that are surrounding it. And I yeah. think that's where we should go. Is there anything before you'd we get like there, to add to Sorry, that, before we get there, it's worth just pointing out also i've seen a thing being said that is it just people are asking the question whether it's just a negotiating tactic in order to get better concessions in the champions league deal that's being drawn up was um, agreed upon today actually and whether they mm -hmm. can force uefa's hand to give them a bigger slice of the broadcasting revenue or these safe spots in the champions league as it is at the moment under uefa's kind of blessing but it is evident that that's not the case from what i can see it's when when you see andre Agnelli, who is the juventus president and owner he historically has been part of the UEFA executive committee, a big part of drawing up these new UEFA Champions League plans, and has been the chairman of the European Clubs Association, which represents all clubs in Europe. He's been the chair of that, and he's left both posts today, or last night slash today. And all of the clubs involved have all left the European Clubs Association. There is intent behind this to do what they're saying. It is not, yeah. This is not the case where, oh, they'll come back in a few days saying, can we have some concessions? None of that. It's... It's, it's got intent behind it, is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, because I mean, as sort of we like as surfaced today, that 2009 Guardian article of Arsene Wenger talking about the prospect of a Super League, those discussions were already underway 12 years ago. And it's something that's been going on behind closed doors for a long time. And making the statement as a football club that you intend to do it and to, as you said, make all of these like institutional changes and institutional decisions shows that there is intent behind it because how weak and how sort of embarrassed do these clubs look if they then back out of this they're not calling bluff that like perhaps they're calling bluff on the idea that they'd be chucked out of the premier league and calling bluff mm. on the idea that their players would be chucked out of international football but it's very much not a fantastically constructed idea that they've come up with to get a few more pounds this mm. is something that is clearly on the verge of happening because of the intensity with which they have sort of come out and if it were a bluffing tactic you would imagine that by and psg and these clubs wouldn't mind joining in because they're all clubs that want to see reforms to the champions league but it's clearly about a lot more than a reform to the champions league because you would imagine that it would also be more in unison if that were the case this because it would also... be more of like almost like pseudo backwards anti-unionizing where the billionaires are all coming together to say they deserve a few extra couple of hundred million which jp morgan is willingly giving them of course yeah well it they also, this is the first time any idea like this has had a name attached to it so openly. Like Project Big, Big, Project Big Picture came out and everyone then unanimously voted against it. It's This is the first time publicly clubs have acknowledged their, their own idea, basically. So it's worth, those points are all set out. This is with intent. This isn't a joke. This isn't a bluff. This isn't a negotiating tactic. So then we need to deal with what they've said, what they've said their aims are, and why those clearly aren't their aims. <laughs> and Yeah. So then, I think um, yeah. this... Like this argument comes a lot down to the kind of language that's being used. So, and I'm using Arsenal as the example, and I'm sorry, Jordan, I know today you're no, very yeah. um, ashamed to be an Arsenal fan, but I'm picking Arsenal because I've got their statement in front of me. And also there's the history of what they've been doing over the last year. But I think in these sorts of things, I mean, like in the age of Twitter and in the age where fans aren't in stadiums, the major way that clubs communicate with their fans is through social media. We saw that last week with Spurs and the bloody Dulux dog <laughs> playing centre-back story and the way that football clubs adopt personalities on Twitter. Yeah. And the way that clubs communicate in that way is fundamentally important to their relationship to the players. and um, Not to the players, to the fans. And so the things that they say aren't just sort of haphazardly put together. The things that they say are meaningful. They're important and they're out there. And a club with a million followers can't just accidentally tweet something and then have it deleted and have nobody notice. Within mm. three seconds of a tweet being up, that tweet is there forever because somebody screenshotted it. And mm. so the language isn't necessarily careless in these tweets. Which And like the only reason I point this out is that because that means that we can't just say, oh, they didn't mean it like that, because this is a purposeful statement that's been made. I think before we go into like what they've been saying about the pandemic, I just think we should talk about the uneasiness and the arrogance that comes around the way that they've marketed this league itself. They've mm. called themselves the founding clubs, capital F, capital C, which has some weird religiosity behind it. It like reminds founding, you of Mount Rushmore. Fathers. You can imagine, yeah, like the founding fathers. You can imagine like, you know, the, um, you know, Floriano Perez and um, Abramovich One day. One and day Ed Woodward <laughs> and the Glazers having their faces carved into the side of like just... a little stadium outside of outside of the San Siro where it used to be. It's just it, it's absolutely ludicrous that they call themselves the founding clubs as if they possess like this inherent objective superiority to other teams. And it shows you that there isn't that intent 
to bring other clubs into it fairly because they'll always be the capital F, capital C founding <laughs> clubs. Joel, also, I know that I'm ranting and you've put your hand be, up. That's how much be, I've been talking, so do you want to go on? There's going to be a, a Super League Hall of Fame. Let's be clear. There will be a Super League Hall of Fame and all of these owners will be front and centre, Hall of Fame. They're the men. They're the, they're the ones. It's just, like you say, the arrogance of it is... And it, I think we mentioned it on the show yesterday, the inclusion of... like the. The inclusion of Arsenal, I think George kind of mentioned it before. They've said, as we mentioned in their statement, they've said their aims are sporting competition improvement and financial security for themselves and the whole European football pyramid. Let's let's go there. Let's let's show, let's talk about how this isn't good for the whole European football pyramid. This won't bring money to everyone. Because ultimately 3.5 billion euros is coming in from JP Morgan and will be given to the founding members off the bat just for accepting the invitation if it's 12 if it's the 12 clubs stated that's over 290 million euros each if it's 15 then it's like 230 million euros each currently the champions league brings in 2.4 billion euros overall in broadcasting revenue and that's divided among so many more teams this is an amount of money that is unprecedented from a competition to for a competition to give that to a club that's not the amount of money that anyone's ever been given if these clubs were able to play in the super league and the premier league that would be that would blow any anyone in the Premier League out of the water. That's ultimately why it can't be allowed to coexist with the Premier League, right? And yeah, and I think the question that you and like I think the question that you pose, you know, you say about how can clubs be trusted to use that money in good faith? I think Arsenal is the example because I would, you know, I think the counter question is the club that sacks dozens of its staff to fund two hundred grand a week for Willian is definitely the club that's going to be using three hundred million euros for the betterment of. Bolton Wanderers and Colchester United. Yeah, and um, it, it relies, as so much does, on the kind of idea of trickle-down economics. And in this in this industry, this industry has espoused a belief in that for a long time. It's all long been said that money coming in at the top of the game through broadcasting revenue and sponsorship will, by kind of transfer sums and by support packages, filter down to the lower to the to lower divisions than the Premier League. But if has that ever happened before? Has money ever come in? to the top of the game that has not just made a gulf of inequality across the divisions. It's if you, <laughs> well, if, even the, if you the accept... money box, the money box expanding at the top of the game, all it's done at the moment is massively inflate, inflate transfer fees at the top of the game and not really at the, at the lower leagues of the game. And if you were to tell Berry or Macclesfield that, oh yeah, that trickle down economics went brilliantly. No, what it does is it simultaneously forces clubs not in the Premier League to gamble and spend so far beyond their means to gain promotion to a, to another division and then gamble again and again. It hemorrhages money and doesn't actually support them financially at the same time. There are clubs, if... I think every single, there's, there's a championship club at the moment spending something like 260% of their revenue on wages to gamble to get to the Premier League because that's where all the money is. Then trickle down has not happened and nor will it here if these clubs get this unbelievable injection of cash. If this cash comes in, you think Mansfield Town or... Anyone in Leeds will be rubbing their hands together and thinking, oh, a lovely pot of cash coming into the English game. No, it won't. It will be for those big clubs to just buy everyone else. And ugh, nonsense. It doesn't work. It won't work. I mean, even if you accept the myth of trickle-down economics, I think the point of the pyramid analogy is there is nowhere for it to trickle down. If you have a <laughs> league which is steel shut, where 15 clubs are going to, for, like time immemorial, be allowed to just exist in it, there's no trickle down there. Mm. There's no nego- you, you know, it'll be the case. It'll end up being like Serie A, where clubs just sort of trade players with each other. 
and mm. you'll have your Super League players and you'll have your Premier League players. And for, like, I mean, like just a note on language, I know I, I hate calling it the Super League because it lends to it a certain credence and legitimacy and mystique that I don't think it deserves. I think the Greed League is a better way of putting it. Poop, and although that league. might sound slightly annoyed, the Poo Poo League, anything negative league is the best way to put it. Mm. Because the second that you call it the Super League and give it that legitimacy when you're criticising it, you're basically like reconstructing this idea that it is super. And that, that like these are the biggest and the best clubs. When we know for a fact that West Ham and Leicester are better clubs than quite a few <laughs> clubs in this in this system. Mm. And that there are clubs, you know, like Stau Bucharest and Nottingham Forest that, and Celtic that have won more European competitions than many of these teams combined. So I think we need to like make sure we're conscious that when we're calling it the Super League, that's a slip of the tongue. We don't actually think these people are particularly super trooper, super duper. Um, so in, in conclusion, even if you it accept, won't tr- it won't trickle. Yeah. That's the first thing to say. It won't trickle. Is this I mean, is ensuring the in this is ensuring this is ensuring the stability of these clubs? It's not ensuring the, the stability of any other clubs. Yeah, and I think there would be not a semblance of respect because I don't think respect is the right word, but there'd be a bit more of acceptance if in these club statements they'd said, "It's been a bit of a struggle for us this pandemic." We've not made the hundreds and millions of profit that we usually do. I, as your multi-billionaire owner, have had to sell my 45th house to fund this club. I've had to put on hold my plans to build a private spaceship fleet because (laughs) I've had to buy Willian. If you had these (laughs) kinds of honest answers, I might be slightly more forgiving, like at least they're saying what they're saying. But I think the biggest issue with it is they know that the trickle down doesn't work because it's not worked in the Premier League. That was the intention of the Premier League, that more revenue would create more stability for clubs to exist. But we see with the demise of Sunderland, the, like the demise of Portsmouth, the demise of Ipswich, the demise of Bolton, and then the smaller demise of Bury, of, of, of Macclesfield, of Chester, of Rushton and Diamonds, of Wimbledon, all of these clubs that have gone bust or have fallen from grace in the Premier League era have shown that this doesn't work. And the solution to that isn't having that on steroids. It's clearly a reduction of that. It's the distribution of, of, of wealth within the footballing pyramid. And nobody's saying that it's necessarily a bad thing that there's money in football. Like the way the economy works, there's money in football because people are pummeling money into football because everybody wants to watch football and everybody loves football. And that's understandable. I think we can accept that footballers are making a lot of money because there's a high demand for them and there aren't many places. And I don't think this is... Ne- and and, and like, like, like there is the case to be made for salary caps, but this isn't the place to make it. And I don't think people are angry that there is money in football. And I don't think people are even necessarily angry that billionaires own football clubs. You can not, I am angry about these things, but you can be not angry about both of these things and still be angry about the way that these clubs are conducting themselves right now. Because they're not being honest and saying what I just said. They're not being critical of how the Premier League hasn't worked to provide that and being honest with the reasons why it hasn't because of the greed of the individual clubs. What they're not sort of accounting for or like what they're saying instead is cloaking themselves under like the language of the pandemic and that, oh, we've been forced into this situation by coronavirus and this is something we never really wanted to do, but we have to do for the greater good of the game and trust that we have your interests at heart. And it all just falls so death. We see repeatedly, as I was talking about, you know, towards the start of this podcast, is that within sort of neoliberal economics and within the neoliberal dominant world order, it's part and parcel that in times of disaster, states, powerful corporations, powerful individuals 
use those times to accumulate power and accumulate wealth. After the banking crisis of 2008, who was made to pay for it? Well, the Conservative government uses an excuse to strip away the welfare state. When the oil curse was coming in in Venezuela and in Latin American countries, the United States used this as an opportunity to kind of cement their neo-colonial goals on the continent. And when, you know, big corporations see the desperate need of people in the so-called third world to make livings, they pay them pittances and make them live in sweatshops to produce their clothes for a small amount of money. It is not a uncommon thing. In fact, it is the norm for big states big corporations and big money individuals to systematically exploit difficult circumstances to further entrench the exploitation of individual workers. And the thing that makes this particularly sad about football is that football exists usually in opposition to that. The idea of football, you know, the Karl Marx quote, religion is the opiate of the masses. Since he wrote that, it is very much translated into, and you see it around quite a lot, football is the opiate of the masses. People, working people that work, let's say, I think for Leeds, the average is each fan works three hours to buy one Leeds ticket. That's a Bielsa thing that he's talked about. You know, people are putting their hard earned money into having that reprieve, into being part of a community, into joining a sort of collective society, into having enjoyment, into having something they can put their faith in and something that can allow them to escape from whatever difficulties they might be going on in their personal life, in their family lives, in the way they're being treated by the government, in the way they're being treated by their employers. There are so many things that football is used as an escape for. It's used as an escape, not just in terms of enjoyment, but it's used as this kind of like lottery of success. You know, you hear these stories of people in the favelas growing up and being amazing at football and escaping poverty and becoming a worldwide famous superstar. And you have that at 10.30 a.m. in the morning across every park in the United Kingdom where there's like, you know, like two or three footballers in every single little team that want to see themselves as the next Messi or the next Ronaldo because they see that as a way of creating a better life for themselves. And throw kids behind that because they see that as like the lottery of escape from whatever cycle of exploitation and poverty that they're existing in. So football, historically and in the minds of people, doesn't exist as part of that corporatist, part of that exploitative world. But what this goes to show, what this Super League goes to highlight, and highlight, not bring into existence, because the way that football's being put behind paywalls and the way that billionaires and states are using clubs to get away with the awful things that they're doing in the world, and the way that they charge fans hundreds and hundreds of pounds for tickets every season and have made them pay for season tickets even in the pandemic and charge 80 pounds for an official kit and all of these things, point to how the corporatization of football has already happened but what this european super league shows is that not only do these big clubs not give a flying shit about that individual fan who has spent 30 years spending their hard-earned money to pay the ridiculous amount of money you need for an arsenal season ticket who's stuck with arsenal and kept putting their money into that even when that club was betraying them by you know getting rid of Gunnosaurus and you know selling their best players and sacking managers when they didn't want them sacked people have put that faith in their community and in the greater good of football and the ability of football to make their life a better place not only have they sort of gone against the grain of that but they've had the audacity to pretend that they're doing it for the good of these people it's not just that they are exploiting these people taking advantage of them you know, ruining any semblance of trust that they had with them. But they have the audacity to pretend that they're doing it for them, 
and that they're not doing it for the 300 million euro payout they're getting from JP Morgan, Clive, um, 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 you know, um, Woodward's former employers. It is, it is farcical, it's pathetic, and it's actually just border on evil. Because that one thing, that one institution, and people take the make out of like, you know, football's the most important, least important thing. And, you know, football is trivial compared to the real world. But it exists with the real world and it's a trivial place where people go to get happiness and to get joy and to get a sense of community where that might be missing from their lives. And this is just like a real sad exposure of how it's all just more of the same. Mm. What? That's my anger. Mm. <laughs> Sorry what? about that little f- what f- 10 can, minute rant. What can you said at the beginning of the show, kind of little snippet. Who, who has the power to change things now, do you think? Well, for me, I think, and this is where part of my anger has been placed as well. People are looking at, you know, because Gary Neville shared a Bill Shankly quote on socialism to like rile back against what's been going on. And people are like looking at UEFA and FIFA and hoping that they'll ban um, players from competing and that they'll ban from competing that saviorism because these people that have been using football to make money and to exploit over the course of their lives like Gary Neville owns a football club you will blatant disregard for human rights and have a disregard for bringing football to everyone and ensuring that football is accessible for all and you know they don't seem to care about racism in football or homophobia in football or sexism in football either and so I think it's not them that we look at. And I think there's only a at people who are still going to support their team and I feel like that is the misdirected anger it is not you know Joel from Lewisham who keeps supporting Arsenal's fault that Arsenal are doing it it is Arsenal's fault and it is the owner's fault and sadly I think we're in a situation where the fans can't do anything the owners clearly can't do anything and it it's doubtful that the footballing institutions will do anything the only people left to be able to rile against this and to stand up against this are the players and i hope they have the backbone in them to do it yeah i yeah i agree that the, the players while they shouldn't be obviously it shouldn't be down to them to do anything it ultimately does have to come down to them part of me also wonders whether just letting them go and having uh, an internal a kind of uh, an in, an fa an fa backed bid to really change the ownership structures of the clubs that are left in in England could be a real, it could be a chance to really get get some essence of football back. Do you know what I mean? It's when, say, if um if FA brought in more stringent rules to do with you how much spend how much you spend with regards to your revenue and how how broadcasting revenue is distributed currently and how yeah I don't I don't know I think there could be a chance here to let these clubs who are backed by people who categorically will not change how they behave and categorically have the most money 
get these if these people want to leave the league, leave the league, get them out of the league, right? Stan Kroenke's wealth has only gone up over this pandemic, as you said. He's clearly not the one who's going to be who's actually suffering from where we are right now. It's the other clubs who have been forced to spend recklessly have then spent recklessly and are now in a terrible situation. If they're left now and are properly regulated by the FA, who have the chance to do it now, if if they let these clubs go, that could that could be a saving moment for some of these clubs who, if they're left to go on the current path, could be headed for destruction pretty quickly. I think we're we're coming towards the end of what kind of we've got to say, but I don't know. I just a few days ago, and even you might have heard it on the show yesterday. You might be able to tell from the way I was speaking, but I was actually quite quite proud of Arsenal. I was like in a in a season of mediocrity and inconsistency, we'd pulled out a good performance in midweek and a good performance last weekend involving promising players. And it, it made me proud that my club continued our anti-racism gesture in front of opposition. And it made me excited about how the team could look with these young, talented men in the, in the team for the next kind of 10 years. I was like, I was genuinely hopeful and optimistic just yesterday. I, along with many others then, felt genuinely humiliated by my own club. This move, this move, this this bid for a Super League shows that the club are willingly and enthusiastically turning their backs on every fan who has paid for a ticket or a shirt or anything at one of these clubs. Any fan who has given money to these clubs up to this point mean nothing. And they do not care at all about any of these people. They turn their backs enthusiastically and they have played us all for fools, still pretending that it has anything to do with us. Something that kind of irrationally tips me over the edge of anger yesterday on Arsenal's official website. The, the top of the the top of the statement included a picture of the Emirates, right? And the Emirates, if you don't if you haven't seen it, has on the outside of pictures of um, kind of Arsenal legends and it has their names on the back. And it had a picture of David Rowcastle. David Rowcastle played for Arsenal in like the late 80s, early 90s and was, he's he's a, he's somewhat of a kind of hero of mine. Even He passed away in the early 2000s from cancer quite tragically, but had he not, he would be Mr. Arsenal in the media today. He came from an estate in South East London. He grew up only wanting to better himself and to behave respectfully and better his community that he grew up in. And they used a picture of him. His name was on the picture attached to this statement and that, the audacity and the the attachment, even though it's not an attachment, the attachment of that name to this statement really got to me. If you were to ask David Rowcastle today, if you could, what do you think he'd say? If you were to ask Ian Wright today, who also came from an estate in South East London to get to this point, what would they say? Like, it's embarrassing. And it's, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's a humiliation of all the fans that have put anything into this club and I uh, it is making me probably if this if it all goes through I won't be an Arsenal fan from next season we'll go with that well simply put what Ian Wright says is absolutely shameful yeah and I, I've heard him speak a lot about David Rocastle and he said that nearly every day he's guided by what Rocastle would do and we all know what Rowcastle would be saying right now, and that's something that should be should be kept in mind. Yeah, I think that's all I've got to say. George, uh, do you want to finish us off? 
I think I think that's all good. Oh man. Okay. We will be back on Sunday. See if football as we know it still exists. <laughs> <laughs>